0: Hi, I'm Roy Cullen and I'm the creator of the podcast. You can find everything about me and the five podcasts on bio.link forward slash podcaster and you'll find it in the QR code there. I'd also like to thank my sponsors. If you or someone you know is struggling with anxiety and want to know how to be 100% anxiety free in six weeks without therapy or drugs, Daniel Packard Anxiety Solution Program Company offers a six-weeks system that permanently solves anxiety at an astounding 90% success rate. People who join the program only pay at the end once they have clear measurable results. If you're interested in learning more, go to PermanentAnxietySolutions.com where you can book a free consultation with Daniel. Do you have high blood pressure and want to get off the meds? Doctors are amazed at what Zona Plus can do. Get a $50 discount with my code ROY. Go to slash discount roy and you see the QR code for all my sponsors down at the end. Quality Polish manufacturer of metal products for telecommunication and workshop equipment and other metals. If you'd like a brochure, you see it in the QR code, and you just let us know if you would like a quotation shipped internationally and very competitive rates. I hope you enjoy this week's podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom International Livestream, and uh, we thank you all the time for um, supporting us, whether you like it, you subscribe, you share, you participate in the conversation now or in the future. you're We're always grateful because we want to, you to be part of what we Feel that it is important for us and for the whole community or wherever we belong and for the whole nations. So, today we are very happy to um, have our guest, Jim Still, and I'll tell you more about him. But it's just nice that someone who is an expert in, you know, in the anything that relates to climate change, climate crisis, or whatever you want to call it, gives us time to be with us, okay? So he's one of those that I truly appreciate, and he is an ecologist, and for me, he's also a biologist because he both have a degree in ecology and biology, all from San Francisco State University. But before I continue about Jim, I want to make a shout out to the CO2coalition.org, particularly Greg Wright Stone, who's been our first guest from CO2 Coalition. Because whenever we want to have someone who's an expert in certain specific topic, about uh, about about truth in our environment and our climate and you know I go to him and thank you Greg and uh, we'll have you again in the future but thank you for always helping us through so because of that we've had Patrick Moore Mark Morano Frank Lassie, and now we have Jim Still so we're just going to make a collection of <laughs> CO2 coalition scientists because for me it's one Incredible group of scientists who are skeptics, maybe skeptics, but without those skeptics, we will never know the truth. So, we also, you know, Roy, Carl, welcome you. And, 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 and I am truly humbled that all of you could be with us. So, Jim, as I was saying earlier, is that he also became the dean of the College of uh,
2: uh, oh, let he me was a, correct that I wasn't the dean. I was the director of the director. of a field station. Some people have called me dean. I, I like <laughs> to think just because they think I'm smart, but uh, no, just I was the director of the field station.
1: Yeah, the director. The, so, the
2: dean's the one that hired me. So
1: the dean knows better. He didn't yeah. make a mistake. That's all I. I know. Uh, that
2: that the dean that hired me was a skeptic, also. So we got along <laughs> very well.
1: So we are all in safe space, even through this uh, live stream. And as an ecologist, you did write that in order to understand and observe wildlife population changes, you also had to understand the effects of landscape changes, fire ecology and climate cycles, such as El Niño and La Niña. So, There, there's a the little bit. Anything more that we need to know? Oh, don't forget he also wrote a book sometime in early 20s. was that? what? Uh, you 2013
2: you I published that book.
1: Right. They published the book and in the landscapes and cycles and an environmental journey to climate skepticism. So the website is still there but it may not be up to date but the website is there. Okay. And... Uh, so Jim's uh, contact, if you care to get in touch with him, is he feels freely to share his email. And it's jstil at sfsu.edu. And do follow him in the YouTube. We just search Jim Still. And thank goodness he's still there, because like Roy and I have no more YouTube. So while he's in the YouTube do get some (laughs) information and get some education. So Jim, thank you so much. And you know why I uh, thought of um, inviting someone about the fires is as we all know, there've been so many fires all over. So the first thing that some people would always think that it's natural fires or they call it like wildfires and they relate it to natural fires. But you would be the best person for me to ask, you know, if you could start by just helping us understand what is a natural fire and what causes a natural fire and how many of these recent fires like Maui, like the fire in Greece or, you know, that you know of that can be considered natural fires. And if not, why not? So please lead us to that conversation.
2: Okay, you really have two sources of ignition. And you know, in the United States, the data shows that probably 85% of the fires are started by people, by a careless uh, campfire or a cigarette or a downed elect- electric pole. Um, if you look along the coast of California, and I'm just south of San Francisco, almost all the fires along the coast, uh, are set by people. Your natural fires are by lightning strikes. And so you always have lightning. Uh, light and, and, and often, I mean, the lightning strike is about 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, that's about 28 degrees centigrade. I, you Irish go by centigrade, right? Okay. So, uh, but, um, those happen in certain places. So in California, Sierra Nevada, you have some summer fires that are going to be started by a lightning strike. Um, if we look at the, the Maui fire, it, it was started by humans. It was a, it, it, a downed electrical pole. We had a big fire in Colorado, Colorado's biggest fire. That was started by a, uh, a trash fire that got away. So it different ones that uh, happen for different reasons that uh, we had a big fire called the Beckwith fire, which ended up being one of the bigger fires in California two years ago. Uh, that was a, a faulty electrical grid. So if we look at just natural fires and it, it's hard to separate it, if, if we look at all the data of of wildfires and what's been very dishonest by climate alarmists, is they show an increase in wildfires in the United States, but the starting point is 1980. And really, if, if you look back, and a number of people, they use charcoal and and tree ring scars and whatever. If we go back before the 1900s, there were far more fires, hundreds of more fires than we see now. Now, how many of those are natural is is not easily... Uh, deciphered because Native Americans often set fires to clear the brush away. It helped. Uh, it, once you have a wildfire go through, it, you have new growth, and that's good for for wildlife. So, we can't quite tell exactly what's going on. In, in lightning, it's probably only one out of a thousand lightning strikes will cause a fire. I've, I've seen plenty of lightning scars on trees, even though the the lightning is is that hot. It's only brief enough. That it doesn't ignite the tree. It's usually when it goes into the ground, if there's a lot of duff on the ground, it will it can ignite that duff. And the biggest fires that we have, or the largest burnt areas, is due to grasses. And grasses burn very easily, or you have small little twigs that are easily ignited. I know mm-hmm. how many of you have started campfires but you, you don't put a match to a log. It's just, it, there's just not enough energy there. The match is a thousand degrees temperature, but it's not gonna ignite the log. You have to start with kindling. And the, it, all the fire experts, when they look at, they give a, a red flag warning of, about when are you gonna have a fire, what's your fire danger. You look at the grasslands and it was the grasses that just carried uh, the fire, the tragic fire into Lahaina in Maui. Um, they spread real fast, they're easily ignitable, and the fire experts will call grasses, dead grasses, one-hour fuels, meaning you could have snow on the ground the day before, have it melt in one hour of dry noontime temperatures, that grass could be flammable. Now, I grew up in New England, and I know in that area, a lot of people say, well, once the snow melts, I can go Make a trash burn, get rid of the leaves and everything from the winter. Well, they had to do public service announcements warning people that just because the the snow disappeared yesterday doesn't mean it's all that vegetation's not going to uh, burn. So because because people just get a misunderstanding, and if you have all this one hour fuel, it, it's just ludicrous that a, a a climate alarmist can say the climate is causing these things to burn more climate is going to be change is going to be measured over 30 40 years and, and here you have vegetation that's being ignited just because it dried for an hour it, it but they try to make that link and it, it's really a dishonest representation of of what happens and i'm going to shut up for a second and see if you have some questions for clarity here
1: oh um, and in one of in many times that you had that interviews and conversation uh, you always speak about the change in the landscape and the change in relation to the people migrating or to the plants being imported. So I remember my study when I was in, um, taking my masters and I had an ethnobotany study and I was in Hawaii. And that was part of the critical thinking that um, my professor mentioned. and i too was like you know oh i never thought about the effect of the people in the in moving migrating to the landscape and then to the temp, to the climate but i was but then the pla- the plants was so crucial i wonder if you can share us more thoughts of that because i think it is important for people to understand that you know even in our local homes we could do something to maybe protect us from the future fires, whether it is by lightning or by human, you right.
2: know? And, and, and that's you know, and the, again, if we, the more recent case of the Lahaina fire in Maui, it was invasive grasses. They had created these uh, sugar cane plantations, uh, pineapple plantations, and then as they become uh, or as they became economically uh, unfeasible they were just abandoned. And so these invasive grasses that weren't native took over. And when they die, they just, they're highly flammable. And as I said, they can just, one hour of dry temperatures is enough to have them ignited. They knew, the government officials knew that that could be an issue. They've been warned. And and what you really have to do, and for any fire, if if you're Camping, you, you kind of scrape a bare area around your wildfire so the fire can't get away and ignite those grasses or twigs. Anybody is living in what you call the urban wilderness interface where you're interacting with the, the forest and whatever, you're supposed to set up a mosaic where you prevent the fire from coming to your house. So you scrape out bare ground, someplace. you get rid of the grasses, you get rid of some of the shrubs with the the tiny twigs that are easily ignitable. And you try to minimize any way that that fire can be carried to your house. What happened in Lahaina, and I've seen it in a number of places in California, when people have made these developments out into the wild, the houses are very close together. And if the fire reaches just one house, the heat builds up and radiates out and ignites the next house. And so what you can often will see in those places, you'll see rows and rows of houses all burnt to the ground. You know, I, I went up at the Paradise Fire, uh, the campfire it was called, but it was in Paradise, California. It just all these neighborhoods were just burnt to the ground, but the trees around them were okay because they didn't hold the heat and radiate it out the way the houses did. But I went to a few places. There was a church where they were giving out all this aid to the people. And the church was not touched. The church was surrounded by a little bit of a parking lot in a large grassy lawn that was live grass. Well, the fire came right up to this growing lawn and then stopped, and it it never reached the house. the the church Everything was fine, Mm -hmm. Um, and you could see that in certain houses that were slightly separated from uh, these more developments that the fire got up and got one house and then burnt the whole neighborhood to the ground these other houses that were separated and had a little bit of a a, a fire break between them they were saved. so it the one thing people really have to think about is how close can the fire get to you for your individual house and what you can easily do is keep mowing the grass you know when when they go to f- uh, stop a fire the firefighters will actually bring in bulldozers to scrape the ground uh, to bare ground, so it can't ca- those grasses can't carry the fire into the uh, further along. And so, if you do that, I would also say, if you're in danger, in, in certain places are going to have more fires. Is is maybe have a, a fireproof uh, roof because sometimes embers can can the wind can carry the embers to your house and, and start a fire. But but that main thing is making a mosaic. What they should have done in Lahaina is what they should have done in a number of places. And if you get a spark, and it and it looks like they thought they put the fire out, but the when the winds pick up, so any places where it's very windy, you're in a bigger danger. And that's what, that part of Maui is known for the winds come from from the northeast, it's the trade winds. They go over the, and I forget what the volcano is in Maui, but then they come down the side and they're very, they've dropped all their moisture on the north side, they're dry Heavy winds and that just carried that fire right into Lahaina, um, and people were aware of that. And, and sadly enough, it, it wasn't a fire break wasn't dealt with to to keep Lahaina from having a fire danger. I don't know if I've rambled too much on that, but
1: no, no, you didn't. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'll pass it on for for the meantime to Roy.
3: Thanks, Chris. I suppose Jim will get to know you a little bit because when you came on first, I'm looking at the hats in the background and all the medals. You might let us know what
2: that about. Uh, Well, I I have family visiting here, so I am relegated to my wife's sewing uh, room, and uh, we're big sports fans. Um, I was a Celtics fan, if that rings true for the Irish but uh um, my wife is my wife actually was a better athlete than I was she was a a top point guard at college and a top out uh softball outfielder so um, she's been a lifelong San Francisco fan for the Warriors and you know we go to games and you got bobbleheads so there's some of that and there's different hats and if people don't know what to give us for Christmas or birthdays, we get sports memorabilia. So, uh, between my Boston Red Sox and Boston Celtics and her 49ers and giants, and those are my second teams. uh, uh we, we have a, a lot of uh, winning teams to support. So what you're seeing behind me is some of that memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. So like, A lot of uh, people have seen as well,
3: helicopters pouring flames onto the forests. So there's a lot of, I don't know, the the powers that be creating a lot of the fires as well. I mean, I've looked at some of your videos and you give some fantastic advice for people how to stop it. But like, I mean, have you seen things like that where we know that being intentionally they've caused the fires?
2: Well, I think you're confusing two things. When you see helicopters dropping these fire retardants, and often it's a little color, or, or water, um, well, they're trying to slow the fire down. And if it takes, before you can ignite the vegetation, you have to dry it out a little. You know, And the fire's probably moving around and, and radiating radiating out about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit uh, heat. But it will take it, it had, almost takes, Four times as much heat to evaporate the water as it does to ignite something this drier. So they're trying to dump water on it and slow it down and see if it's This they isn't can help water. It. No, this is flames. Well, Are you stop. saying
3: that this would be to kind of stop the. the, the, the uh, well, I'm I'll
2: see them do two things. I've, I've watched them take uh, planes come in with big buckets and they scoop into the, the lakes and pull up the water and then go dump it. But also some come with fire retardants and that looks kind of reddish or pinkish. Uh, usually when they do a prescribed burn, when they I, I've seen where they've done prescribed burns, wh- which I think is a good thing is what the Native Americans did to help manage the, the, the landscapes there. But they usually go with some kind of blowtorch system and they're walking around and setting the fire and they've kind of made uh, certain um, containment mosaics to, to help them control it. So I I've, I've never seen them starting a fire from a helicopter or, or from. A I, I've
3: seen a few videos of that. And I was like, you know, this doesn't but make sense. I,
2: I'd be curious if you could email me of course, the link yeah, to the yeah, video. Yeah. I'd like to look at that because it, um, it it's possible that sometimes you're trying to start a backfire that you're that maybe you would, it would the quickest way to do that. Um, and to mobilize people is to fly over and start that backfire so you burn out an area so the advancing fire won't won't advance so it it's not impossible it's not something that I've seen that but I know they do stuff like that and, uh, it, it's a lot harder to have people drive out in a truck and it's you know you can get caught in the flames if you if you're uh, on the ground so that is possible i'd have to know the context of what you're referring to but but mostly when i see prescribed burns that they're, they're on the ground with uh, some kind of blowtorch type of situation that's pretty well controlled sometimes they get out you know some of the locals where i worked uh, got a little nervous when the forest service would do prescribed burns because they would uh, the wind would shift and it would get away from them so okay And like uh, Grace was mentioned, uh, the Maui fires,
3: and I've seen a load of videos on that. And I know there's a lot of people saying the power was turned off before. There was no alarms. The water was turned off. But I've seen people going around. And I mean, I remember when I uh, grew up, they used to be burning out cars. And they were never looking like what you'd see there. And also, there's people showing kind of like one area. All the houses around are grand. But in this little area, the cars were just burnt out. It didn't make sense how a fire could actually do that.
2: You know, a lot of what I've seen from the Lahaina is, is the housing was pretty close together, and they weren't thinking of how the fires would spread there. Um, so it's you know the the houses that escaped, you know, all, all these wealthy people that have been on that side of, of Maui, and that's that's the dry region of uh, of Maui. You know, it, it doesn't get much rain there, and that's why people like it. it's a, a lot of sunshine. Um, and you get the heavy winds that will come down on that. So anytime the fire got close to a a housing, uh, neighborhood where the buildings are close together, they'll, one house will ignite the next house. You you just see it one after another. This it's, you know, some of these things I've seen from aerial photos, I'll I'll see a hundred houses all went down and you, you just had to ignite one house. You just had to get one to, to have it travel that way. Um. In, and I guess a lot of people don't kind of realize how much heat can be radiated because it's invisible. And, and probably the only sense you have it if you sit, sit around a campfire, uh, you're getting warm by radiation. So you're you face in the campfire, your your chest gets warm, but your back is cold if it's on a on a winter's day. But but you that kind of gives you a sense of the difference of how much heat can be radiated. Um, so I. I Don't know exactly again the neighborhoods that you looked at, but um, certainly I could see what I've seen in many different places is closely packed houses. The whole neighborhood can go once you once you lose one. If you don't have enough, you know, I've seen fires in the city where they they hose down the neighboring house to make to minimize the chance of it igniting. So okay, and I mean like for
3: those that are in the unfortunate situation of being stuck in the middle of this, is there a kind of an evacuation process, the do's and don'ts? Because I mean, obviously panic kicks in.
2: Absolutely. It, it, and I think that was part of the tragedy of Lahaina, that they were kind of told not to hit the highways, I, I think because there's, you had limited access, you know, and so they were kind of advising people to stay in place. And then the fire just uh, came upon them much too quickly. So the people that kind of ignored the guidance of staying in place and s- snuck around the borders, they're the ones that kind of escaped. And the ones that stayed home, it, it was deadly. So it was, I mean, what we'll see is they'll have to come up with uh, a much better evacuation plan. And I think I think part of their general warning was not just for fires, but for tsunamis. Or So it wasn't specific enough, you know, have a certain signal, you know, one kind of horn for one and another alarm bell for another type of disaster. Um, How you would evacuate would be different. But uh, I also think as they rebuild Lahaina, they're going to make sure that they get rid of those invasive grasses, make a mosaic and a better fire break to prevent any kind of fire approaching Lahaina because the winds, once they come over the mountains, they're, they're strong and dry and they happen all the time. Um, every year they get strong winds like that. So you, you have one bad ignition, you know, one faulty wire. That's all it takes. And then you have a disaster.
3: Okay. and with, um like to say the climate change then, because what I've noticed here, they're spraying here, the chemtrails. I mean, we know Bill Gates wants to block out the sun.
0: Yeah, that's, uh,
3: like when I came here first where I'm living, there's a, it's a nice garden with a lot of trees and everything. And sometimes you'd have to cut everything twice in the year. Oh, yeah. I don't even think I'll have to cut it this year because I can see the difference in the clouds, and it's like the weeds will grow, but the trees aren't growing, and I see a lot of trees are actually even dying. Like they're definitely blocking out, and like there's a freedom of information that was somebody had requested it in Wales, and they said go to England, and they actually mention it's for climate that they're spraying for climate, even though. And just your thoughts on kind of the chemtrails and what's Bill Gates
2: up to? Well, I. Bill Gates, to me, is an, an example of how you can be an idiot and, and make millions of dollars. Um, you know, to block the sun, to me, is just totally insane. It, it, if you Just from a climate perspective, if you look at the long-term weather stations in the United States and around the world that have over 70 years worth of data, 34% have cooling trends. So, it, But you average together, and it looks like it's warming. And... And again, uh, we have this global average. It's really driven by the Arctic sea ice that was blown out by the winds, and the Arctic Ocean has a has about 900 meters worth of warm, salty Atlantic water that came via the Gulf Stream into the Arctic. When the winds blow out the ice, then all this heat radiates out. So it looks like it's warming, but actually, the Arctic Ocean is cooling because it's ventilating that heat when you average those together it looks like warming so they say okay block the sun to stop the warming well if you're this 34 that were cooling you're you're not making their life any better and they say oh go, global warming is causing less crop production you block the sun you going to you're gonna stop that you know the co2 has been great for a greening of the country it, if you look at a standard greenhouse Uh, the optimum CO2 concentration is about a thousand parts per million to have that greenhouse grow. And you want to constantly feed it that way. Um, But we're only at 400. So in a sense, you could say the vegetation of the world is starving for CO2 right now. And last time we had a major extinction back 252 million years ago, the Permian, CO2 was down to about 180 or lower. And they had a rainforest collapse they had a blackout of algae in the oceans so the lack of co2 is probably more problematic but it's it's the stories are being pushed in a different way you try to make you weaponize every weather event and then blame it on climate and it's all narrative and they're getting all these kids that are are totally terrified but kids kids haven't even lived long enough to know what climate is you know they see a a tornado and think, oh, this is climate change. Well, they've happened all the time, but they're, they're sort of brainwashing these kids. I just saw a video of Obama saying, I want you to stay angry about this and vent your anger and focus in this. They're, they're getting all these kids to be an army uh, of alarmists when they don't know any better. But if you have a skeptic scientist, you know, the World Economic Forum, they brought Greta Thunberg, who was a 16-year-old actress who knows squat about climate, have her speak, but they didn't invite any skeptical scientists. The CO2 coalition just got the the 2022 Nobel Prize winner in physics joined this coalition, and, and he he agrees with the coalition that CO2 is not the problem, and That's this climate crisis is is really a bad hoax in a misdiagnosis of what causes the Earth to warm. And I, I've given a few talks and what has always amazed me is you say, well, do you think it's warmed? And I said, well, you know, in the 1800s, it was a little ice age, and we've definitely warmed a little. The oceans, I think all the data shows the oceans have warmed a little. And I said, but it's not CO2. And they said, well, geez, if, if CO2 is not warming, what could it be? So no one's being taught about the other ways that Earth can warm, the other dynamics that cause these events. They try to make every event due to CO2 or made worse by CO2. And, and the public is actually... I think has become more illiterate about how climate changes because of the way they've tried to focus on this narrative, and, and I just wonder if the World Economic Forum is doing this on purpose. You know, they they kind of want to govern everything. Um, so why would you have? Yeah, and they're
3: like, they're, they're it's all about tax. They're just taxing people for all this, like even on airlines and everything, it's insane. Like, yeah, let's tax tax people to make things better.
2: You're gonna die if we don't save you. So that's that. Everything's scary to you know, to push that to push us into their arms and allow them to control us. And it, it, you know, as a scientist, you know you have to have debate. That's it, the that's the one unpardonable sin is not to be a skeptic about stuff. And the only way science advances is by good debate, good skepticism. If someone just throws out one theory and says, "I'm science, so you believe me." Uh, That's just bad science. That's just uh, an ego trip by a a single scientist. But I I hear different guys saying that kind of stuff. And they've tried to shut down the debate very early on. And and instead of calling you a skeptic, they call you a denier and try to make it as if we don't understand the science. But I've seen much better uh, scientific understanding by skeptics. And I'll give you one example. Every now and then I give uh, nature walks to the locals and I had a couple of professors show up and they started talking about climate change and asked me and I said, well, I'm on a different side. I'm, I'm a skeptic here, but let's, let's not talk about it while I'm doing this. Uh, let's go have coffee afterwards and we'll discuss it. And I sat down and, and one of the professors teaches global policy for global warming. And so I said, well, what was the research that convinced you CO2 was causing all this? And he just kind of shyly shaked his head and said, I was afraid you are going to ask me that. I'm, I'm just trusting what they say. So, there, so this is just kind of people are just accepting this without challenging it. And they're afraid to. And, and there's a number of times when you if you challenge the dogma, uh, the university or fellow professors kind of blackball you. They want you. And the more you go with the, the standard dogma, the more papers get accepted. And when you challenge the dogma, the journals don't accept your paper as easily. So there's a whole pressure to kind of keep this narrative going without really being challenged. And and that's a horrible detriment for us to understand how to protect us from wildfires, how to protect ourselves from any kind of extremes that naturally happen. So... Hmm. And I mean, like the, the
3: problem is not everyone can have a, a debate and just, you know, iron it out. It's a case of my way or the highway. And unfortunately, that's the way society, whether the jab or anything, it's all like this. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and if we look at like all these politicians and, you know, rich actors, they're all living by the coast and they're trying to tell them that the sea levels are rising. You can see pictures of 100 years old and the water levels are the exact same from the pictures. And also, in, in you know, the, the polar bears, you know, like if you watch BBC and David Attenborough, they'll, sh- they'll follow one, you know, anorexic polar bear and they say they're all dying. And the reality is they're actually on the increase.
2: Well, that's, you know, I, the polar bear, uh, there was a couple of things that I got as an ecologist. It was saying all these animals are moving. And, and the polar bear one got me the most because it was and I wrote about it in the book is when there was a lot of hunting, the polar bears were down and they stopped hunting. The polar bears have come back. If For the whole food chain that keeps the polar bears alive, if you don't have melting of the ice and then refreezing, the seals couldn't exist there for the whole polar bears to hunt. If you don't have melting of the ice, you have no photosynthesis. No photosynthesis, you have no zooplankton, you have no fish, you have no seals, you're not going to have any bears. So what's going on up in the Arctic of less ice, and the reason we've had less ice is because it was blown out of the Arctic, not because it melted from above, but it was blown out from f- freezing winds from Siberia, and that allowed this heat to ventilate. Well, that's been a boon for the for the polar bears, and and then to, to kind of uh, check back with you on, on the sea level, there were some good papers. Uh, where what they've done is sometimes a tide gauge looks like the sea is rising, but it's really because the land is sinking. And that's one thing that we have done in so many different places is to feed the growing populations enough water in the cities, you pull out all the underground uh, water and the aquifers. And when that happens, the land compresses and sinks. So uh, one guy did a study of all the long-term, uh, his last name was Baretti, and he, he looked in the south, uh southern pacific so you look around new zealand australia and a couple of islands and they had gps systems right next to the the tide gauges and so if you subtracted the land sinking from what the tide gauge was saying the average rise in the sea level is just one millimeter a year and you know one millimeter in a year takes like uh it's just not going to add up to anything. You, you can certainly protect yourself from that. But I, I've here in Pacifica, California, I was on the sea level rise committee, but there are people that just want to build walls that are 20, 30 feet high. That's tremendously expensive. They call it managed retreat. Let's start moving all the buildings along the coast inland. It, people just go nuts and they don't really investigate everything that's going on, but it's, it's, we really don't have that threat. And as you see, you can see a lot of places you, you just don't notice the sea level rise. Cause it's so minuscule. Um, it is weaponized though. And and people, because they don't critically think they're not taught to critically think, uh, they just hear a fearful story and, and they take it as, as gospel. It, our media system, like national public radio, uh, they always kind of throw in climate change for every event. They just, you know, one line with it. I used to love David Attenborough because I love the photography and, and being an ecologist and a, a nature buff. But it's, some of the stuff he's done, he, you know, and he got invited to the World Economic Forum, it's really bad. It's it's just propagandists using his great photography abilities to, to spread a narrative that's not connected. As you said, that there was that one anemic polar bear that uh, this was National Geographic did that one. They filmed it and they said, this is what climate change is like. And they got pushback on that. But I I think it had like 30 million views within a day. And everybody thinking, oh, this is the poor polar bear. Well, it had nothing to do with uh, climate change. And you can think of a hundred reasons. No one knew why the polar bear was uh, sick, but people just jump on that. It's just these knee jerk reactions. Uh, I'll just throw in, I I did some, I monitored like six different um, wet meadow uh, systems in the Sierra Nevada and one of them crashed and all the bird life we were studying was disappearing. And I had different professors or students come in and they'd see it drying out and say, oh, that's just what climate change predicts. Oh my God, this is what it's about. Now they've only looked at it for five or 10 minutes. But they give me that knee-jerk reaction. I've been studying it for 15 years and measuring different things, and I knew it had nothing to do with climate because I was. This place was one of the re- places in California where the maximum temperatures were higher in the 1930s than they were now. So I couldn't blame it on climate change. It turned out that it was the streams had been downgraded from an old railroad track a hundred so years ago, and that caused all the water to, uh, to be. Uh, drain the aquifer and dry out everything, dry out the plants. So it, we've restored it and all the wildlife came back. But if we just jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, that's climate change, we would never have fixed it. We would, you go out and you'd protest or maybe glue your ass to a, uh, a sidewalk or something, uh, and nothing would have been done. But you think you're a hero saving the environment when you, you were actually doing the worst thing for the environment. You were ignoring what really happened and how you could fix it. And and that's what made me write this book, was that if you're really an environmentalist, it's not climate change, is an issue, it's it's landscape changes that we can fix. And then these natural cycles, we can't, but be prepared to know that they're gonna happen. In California, the El Niños, we get heavy rain, heavy snows, the Niños, you get droughts. And it fluctuates every, you get these events every, three to seven years, but then it, it sets up the whole Pacific Ocean for like 30 years of more dryness or 30 years of more wetness. And uh, if people understand that, they'd sleep better at night, but um, they get a drought and they think, oh, we're all going to die. So they've done a good job with propaganda. It's kind of uh, that I, I've seen I've seen it
3: with uh, even Sesame Street for the children. It's sad, like, but listen, Jim, thanks a million. And uh, I don't want to hog the stage. I'll pass it over to Carol.
4: Uh, Jim, yeah, to, uh, regards those polar bears. Um, <clears throat> I um, I taught my nephew to look into that because he was being propagandized at uh, at school. I uh, don't just keep his mouth just keep quiet. But here's another side to the story. Um, like the polar bears, they don't really know if what their populations are doing because they didn't take any serious consensus until. I late in the game, I can't remember what it was. But um, polar bears can also swim 80 miles in the sea to go hunting, nothing unusual about that. And what people forget is, and this is all part of the cloak and dagger sort of thing, is uh, when they show pictures of the polar bear dying uh, and they say the poor bear, if well, you have to realize it's top of the food chain. When it loses its teeth, it can't hunt. And nothing nothing can really attack it. So that's the way a lot of them come to their end, is by starving.
2: Um, Yeah, they could get get in a fight with another bear or just old age. uh, I know for a fact that old age can uh, wear you down.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm right behind you. (laughs) Um, And the other thing is the use of the word CO2 uh, becomes, they say, carbon, the carbon budget. It's not carbon, it's the carbon dioxide I thought we were talking about. But they move it to carbon, which is different. And then they show pictures of smokestacks billowing out. Uh, well, it's really just water vapor, but are uh, pollutants. And they try to allude that that's CO2 belching out into the atmosphere. But it's CO2 is invisible. And uh, like you say, it's it's... Plants are happier, up around 800 parts per million, a 1,000 parts per million, billion, excuse me. And uh, <clears throat> we have a natural feedback system to take care of all the CO2. Uh, and it's, 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 not, it's not the baddie. It's the destruction. I like you the fact that you pointed out, it's the landscape. I've been saying it's the destruction of the natural habitat and messing with the natural order. That's the real threat. Um, Not not the CO2 thing.
2: That's just. Um... Yeah, one of my pet peeves is oh to to save the environment. Let's do biofuels. Now, a lot of places in the United States that I know of, and probably around the world, is they used to have marginal farms due to low technology, low fertilizer, and as farms become more technologically advanced, these marginal farms went back to the wild. But then when they started doing biofuels, they said, oh, they reclaim the, the land now for corn here in the, the Midwest United States or Brazil for sugarcane, And uh, in Indonesia, they're doing palm oil is a big one and that, that's threatening the orangutans. So you have these environmentalists <clears throat> think they're stopping climate change by using biofuels and they're really making it worse. We were, we were headed back to restoring landscapes to be more beneficial to wildlife. And I, I know when I restored it, the wildlife got better than it ever did. Uh, it, uh, the, my research station was where there was heavy gold mining in the, in the 1800s. They totally denuded the hillsides of the forest to, to get wood for their mine shafts or to forge their metals. They took the streams out of the stream bed and put them in wooden boxes so they could dig up the gravel in the bottom to get to the, get to the gold. So by the late 1800s, it was like a moonscape, but now it is back. The trees are better. The wildlife is better. We, we've had wolves move into the area. We had wolverines that hadn't been there in 60, 70 years. And so as we stop screwing up with the landscape, the wildlife is coming back as good as it had ever been. Yet you keep hearing them say, oh, CO2 is causing ecosystems to collapse. We're, we're not seeing that. Where we allow the landscapes to come back and be more natural, the landscapes or uh, the ecology is thriving. And it's, it's 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 to me it's just abominable. They're just making people think about the wrong thing and, and make them think they're being good environmentalists when they're actually doing the wrong thing. So it's I, yeah, that's
4: I, it. Yeah, it's 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 just the, the simple things if people just look a little. Just a little bit more carefully at the at the issue, they see they could at least entertain that something else is going on. I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking about the reintroduction of the wolf into Yellowstone. And it was one just one species. And uh, it changed the population and the beaver and the deer, and that changed the you know, the way the rivers would flow or they become more stagnant. Uh, and ponds, would, the whole landscape would change, and the whole of nature would thrive just because of one species. Um, but you could blame it on snowmelt. Uh, you know, you could, you could blame it on so many things unless you actually look a little closer. Nature is never just one simple thing that, that's responsible for everything.
2: It's so much more resilient. If, if the landscape is there for them, they'll do well. You know, I used to maybe 30, 40 years ago, help some people do whale watching trips. And we had to go out of a, a place to the south of San Francisco and, and go maybe 25 miles out and hopefully would see one humpback whale. Um, now I can sit and drink my coffee at the beach and see humpback whales all over the place. They, they've come back tremendously and it's just a matter of not hunting them. And the, the, the ecosystems will take care of them and I think most of the subspecies of, of the humpback have now been taken off the endangered list, but there, there's a number of the whales which you can go. It's just been simply over hunting that now they're coming back as strong as they've ever been. But you, you don't see that in the media. But clickbait media just wants to tell you horror stories because you know if you say everything's good, people oh, I don't care. But if you say oh you're gonna die, it's you know you you got a whole genre of horror movies that. It attracts people and, and they're just doing it with the media now so
4: yeah that' that's it I have a friend who works in um, he was monitoring the coral off in Florida uh, for climate change and everybody says it's um, the acidity of the oceans is increasing and that's got to do with um, climate change but he just told me he says no that's not really it it's it's uh, man's interference uh, oh, absolutely. But that doesn't that doesn't make a good headline, and it doesn't tap uh, the funding pools of money for research. Um, you know, that's you mentioned earlier about how academia gets skewed um, because it's easier to write a paper that's not challenging and get published uh, than it is to possibly lose your career. Are and if you don't write a proposal, that's that's the flavor of the month. Uh, you're not going to get, you're not going to get money and then your career stagnates and uh, you don't get hurt. And so that's a, a lot of people are under that. Um, you know, in big institutions, I guess that happens everywhere in everything. You
2: know, there, There's a great story about Daniel Shepman, and he studied crystals and Linus Pauling, who kind of looked at how different atoms join together to the due to the arrangement of their electrons or whatever, said there's st- here's certain crystals that can happen, and here's theoretical crystals that will never happen, and call them uh, quasi-crystals. Well, this guy Dan Shekman, he said quasi-crystals don't exist. So, and probably I knew this because Linus Pauling's son was the chairman of my biology department at San Francisco State. But anyways, Shekman says. I, I'm seeing these crystals in my lab. And, and Linus Pauling would get up at meetings when he tried to speak and say, there's no such thing as quasi crystals, just quasi scientists. And they raised such a stink. You know, they, they attacked Dan Checkman and said, they wouldn't publish his stuff at first. It took him a long time to get it published. But other people in his lab finally kicked him out because they said he was bad for their funding to get uh, any kind of funding going on. And finally, when he published and people looked, they said, oh, yeah, now I see quasi-crystals. He, he got the Nobel Prize and they used quasi-crystals in high surgery uh, equipment. It's it's like he saw it, but no one wanted to believe it because, you know, one guy had created this meme. Linus, Linus Pauling was a genius. He probably would have had a third Nobel uh, if his sons didn't give away this DNA stuff. Um, but... the you know, if you don't fall in step, it's going to take years before good, a good skeptic can come and show you why they're a little off in what they were thinking. So it's, there's just that uh, way that science is, is not advancing as quick as it could be because certain personalities uh, can control it. And now, if you have the government take your side, all your funding—if you know, government said, "I want I want you to fund this." That that's what you go for. I I had a friend. He, they did nasal mites. And somebody else looked at leaf miners, and they're sitting around saying, "How can I get my research funded and connect it to climate change?" That carries out. So everybody starts looking for any minuscule connection you can do. And, and if you look for it that way, you can always make some kind of connection. It can be a, a it's a false correlation. But that's all you're looking for.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, CO2 is ubiquitous, so you could, uh, well, pretty much ubiquitous, so you could find funding for some weather-related CO2-type connection, Um, you
2: know, because it's everywhere. One of my biggest complaints is when we look at how much CO2 is heating the Earth, and and I I believe in a greenhouse effect, I think we have one, is... But it's pretty much reached its limit. It's not going to get any much worse if it does. But if we didn't have a greenhouse effect, Earth's average temperature would be below freezing. So we have a benefit from that. I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is the oceans are warming. And so they say, oh, CO2 is warming the oceans and not the sun. And and how they measure that warming is in... in the, the energy is measured in joules, and joules per second is watts. So everything is watts per meter squared. They try to, and so they say, oh, well, CO2 has is adding two watts per meter squared, and that's what's causing the warming. And the thing is, the watts per meter squared from infrared doesn't warm the ocean in the same way watts per meter squared from the sun warms the ocean. The sun's energy can penetrate as deep as 100 meters but it's going to do most of its warming in in the upper 5, 10, 20 meters. Uh, I don't know if you ever swam in a cold pond. You can tread water and your body is warm, but your feet hit the cold layer below it, not warm. The infrared from CO2 only penetrates a couple of microns into the surface. I don't know if you're not familiar with microns, but uh, if you sharpen a pencil, if, if people use pencils anymore, uh, a pencil point is about one millimeter, and you can fit a 1,000 microns on a, on a millimeter. So this, the CO2 is only getting this very, cool, this very thin skin surface, and then it can be radiated away right away. The sun, anytime you go below that skin surface, the heat that it gives to the water has to rise to that surface, by convection or, or conduction, and then once it's to the surface, it can radiate away. Well, it takes days, months, and maybe years for that solar-heated water to escape, compared to the infrared that only takes a, an instant to escape. Yet they treat them as the same thing. They say, oh, "Well, this is watts per meter squared, so it must be warming the ocean." I think if if you if they really looked into this better, and I've tried to examine this. I've put it on a couple of my YouTubes to show it's where you have a lack of clouds that allows the sun to heat the ocean more is what's warming the ocean. And, and we do know all, all the studies will show you is the tropical waters heat, they absorb more solar energy, but that energy is then transported further north. So the, the tropics, the water doesn't warm as much as it gets heated. And the places that it gets heated the most is like the eastern Pacific, where you have El Nino's uh, and La Niña's. When it's a La Niña, there's hardly any clouds, and it allows greater heating of the ocean. And that's the place that all the studies show that most of the heat going into the ocean is very localized to that one place. And, uh, And it's somewhat similar in the Atlantic, but not quite as much as in the Pacific. And that's all solar. It has nothing to do... If you think the greenhouse gas is adding heat to the ocean, you think of it as a blanket. Well, it's not... The oceans aren't warming as a blanket. They're warming in very specific places that are connected to solar heating and the lack of clouds. Do you think it's um, also got to do with
4: tectonic plate movement or volcanic activity, heating the oceans? Um,
2: People... Not, I, yeah. I, I hear there, there is tectonic activity... I think it provides some kind of warmth. Um, I don't think it's as much to explain what we're seeing. I think the solar heating of the ocean is, is a better explanation. Um, uh, I don't look at it as, as a major player, but it, it does have, it does play some part. Um, I look at the way climate change is over the years has to do with tectonic activity and the way it allows warm ocean currents to heat the land. If you go back to the Cretaceous uh, 160 million years ago, Antarctica had dinosaurs and lush vegetation on it. And that's because warm waters could surround Antarctica back then. But then as Antarctica kept separating, you got this current called the Antarctic Circumpolar Current blocked all the warm water coming from the tropics towards Antarctica, and Antarctica started cooling. And then... As it started, sea ice started freezing, the cold water went to the bottom and and the whole oceans changed. And so I I look at tectonic activity as rearranging ocean currents, being the more powerful dynamic. Um, And, you know, I I guess, you know, if you look at Ireland or, or Europe, the Gulf Stream, a lot of those Northern European countries would be a lot colder if it wasn't for the Gulf Stream carrying up heat and then it's bringing the heat from the tropics up and then it ventilates and and warms western europe and if um, the eastern united states might be 10 degrees warmer at the same latitude because the the way the winds blow it towards europe so i think those are just examples of how ocean currents once you heat that ocean water uh you're going to be able to affect the, the climate and the transport. So it, most of what we're seeing in climate change, the warming is not in the tropics, but places where the oceans are ventilating heat. So again, that's why I go to the oceans in the solar heating, because a lot of this water is it's warm down to maybe 400 meters where your, your underground volcanic stuff is thousands of meters deep. And I don't think it really is such a great volume of water down there. I, I just don't see it making the same effect.
4: Right. Yeah, no, I've heard that, too. So I just wanted to know, you know, how negligible or significant it was.
2: Yeah, I haven't tried to make it, but we've had, you know, there's there's skeptics that I, uh, Joe Bastardi is kind of a weather guy and, and a skeptic, and he kind of buys into the uh, the volcanic, underwater volcanics is driving it. But I, I, I disagree with it. But, you know, a skeptics are not all following the same uh, narrative. We're trying to look at it for different reasons. So, so you would you would put um,
4: how do I put this climate change due to the sun? Then uh, you know, I mean, I accept climate change is always happening.
2: Absolutely,
4: uh, it would be stupid to think that it was static. Let's put it that way. So, um, so if it's always, I forget what I was going to go with that. Now, um,
2: at our age, that happened.
4: Yeah, <laughs> it's happening more often. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I suppose the other thing is, if it's all got to do with the sun, then uh, essentially, um, do I know that the the the, the climate models they don't, uh, and maybe this has been updated, but they don't contain things like the Mil- Milankovitch cycles, which are four hundred thousand year cycles of the sun and all these you know, uh, um, these large circulations, precession of the cycles. Uh, you know, the, the earth is tilted towards the sun at times, and it's closer, it's at its perihelion. And then at other times, it's facing tilted the same direction, but it's much further away. And these cycles take hundreds, you know, it could be thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. They would seem to be significant in modulating weather because you're 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 changing all these distances and the amount of radiation, but it's very low frequency stuff in the background is that do you know if that's taken into the model of
2: climate change For most of your climate models often they're just looking at you know the most recent seven decades or something so from that point of view um, It's really not going to be incorporated into most of the models. It it depends what they're looking at. Yeah. What what you said, you you have what they call eccentricity, where you have more of an eclipse than a circle, and that's that's about every hundred thousand years. So that's probably not going to affect us over the last hundred years. You have precession, which means you know, I what I always had students. I say you know in the winter, are we closer to the sun or further away? And every summer winter, we're further away, we're wrong. Yeah, we're closer. We're, we're actually closer, but the reason we have winter is because of obliquity, which is about a 41,000 year cycle. The axis is tilted and it, it, it varies from 24 degrees to um, about 21 degrees, but that's just enough to make the sun move further north and cause the ocean currents to bring more water into the, into the Arctic or go a little further south and not transport as much water into that. And, and I do see what studies have shown is our El Nino cycles, when we we're at the uh, peak of obliquity um, back in the Holocene 12,000 years ago, um, that there was hardly any El Nino event. And that's when the warm, the, the Arctic waters were the warmest because the, the way it was tilted was bringing so much more uh, heat into the Arctic. And now as we're cooling, it's been slowly, um, less and less water is being transported in the Arctic. So the Arctic has been cooling. And it, the greatest amount of ice happened during the Little Ice Age a few hundred years ago, where 12,000 years ago, there was no sea ice in the Arctic. And, Again, when I I was saying that La Nina conditions have caused less clouds in the tropical Pacific, Eastern Pacific, allows more heating, almost even the skeptics like Michael Mann would say that the oceans were in an El Nino-like condition during the Little Ice Age, meaning that there, there was, it was more warm water spread across the Pacific, so you had more even distribution of clouds. And then, for the last hundred and fifty years, we've been more uh, La Nina-like, which had less clouds in the Pacific and allowed more warming of the ocean. So so what you see is some of this these orbital cycles are affecting El Ninos. That hardly ever happened twelve thousand years ago. They've increased. So we've got more El Nino- like uh, stuff happened during the the little ice age. Um, it comes into play but on you know, a framework of, 15 30,000 years is going to be a more of an issue and and still a lot of scientists debate is it precession uh, which means that that axis wobbles and depending on where the orbit is it's pointing towards the sun or away from the sun at different seasons but you know a, a warmer season in the north might mean a colder uh, a, a colder season in the in the winter so it's it's balanced out you know, again, but these these are such long-term dynamics. It's hard for that to explain what we're seeing just over the last 100 years. But again, I think if you if you look at this La Nina uh, dynamic, it can explain everything that's happened in the last 150 years. Plus, you know, I, I was uh, co-authored, but a, a minor player in a paper that just got published is saying a lot of our land temperatures have been... I'm ruined by the urban heat effect and again that's just with the with the landscapes there's there's a great picture of um in atlanta uh, georgia and they've done it in other places But you look at the landscape and you can see where it's green forest and where there's city buildings and then you take an infrared and look what the temperature is and there's 10 15 20 degrees difference and the hot places are all where the city's built And the cold places are all where the vegetation is. So, you know, what are we really measuring? We might be measuring a warmer global temperature, but land temperatures are being jacked up by an urban heat effect and and no one can deny that. And you could have other temperatures in the Arctic that are blooming because the ice got blown out and the heat's ventilating. So there's these different dynamics that are making the global average temperature warmer. It has nothing to do with CO2. And if, if you combine them all, you know, you, you hide what's going on if you just make this average temperature and act like something's acting on the average temperature. It's much more regional. It's much more local. And, uh, and I think that's just a, a, a horrible disservice that we're doing to educating people about how their climate is changing.
4: Yeah. What, well, one thing I've learned in, uh, just by uh, listening to you is, I you know, And I know better. Uh, The ocean is not just a a reservoir or a sink for heat. Um, It also, it doesn't just absorb it, it, it causes a redistribution. Absolutely. So it's heat and movement. It's this movement aspect. Uh, which is which is quite interesting because that affects climate. Yeah. And that,
2: that was part of, as I was trying to understand what was happening to me in California, how heat was being transported, El Nino's, La Nino's. If you Google probably ocean heat flux and then uh, click on images, you'll see where there's more heat going into the ocean than it's coming out. And then places where there's more heat coming out than it's going in. And so, again, you'll see these main regions where more heat is going into the ocean that's coming out is in the eastern tropical Pacific and Atlantic. And then it gets transported. The trade winds blow it around, then it goes up, you know, in the Pacific it's the Kuroshio current along Japan. In the Atlantic, it's the Gulf Stream up into the Norwegian current. And along those currents, you see all this heat coming out more heat's coming out of them than it's going in. So it's this very local distribution of, of heat that's happening from the tropics and then spreading up and towards the Arctic that causes these temperature differences. And if you transport more heat, you know, the, the northern latitudes will warm more. You transport less and, you know, you go back to that orbital stuff, it, it affects, you know, how much uh, circulation is happening. La Nina's will also, during La Nina, the, the Western Pacific around Indonesia, it will store heat down to 200 meters deep, and then it will circulate that heat into the Indian Ocean down towards Australia, up along Japan, and that's warming a lot of that whole region. But it's it's something that started in the in the Eastern Pacific, so it's you know that's as you're saying it's that circulation where your transit is is the oceans are absorbing it and then transporting it around the world. And, and that was causes a lot of this uh, climate change that's going around. So, and, and if you look at uh, hurricanes, they typically follow some of this uh, where the heat's going around. So, uh, and I'll give you an example. I try to write about this called solar ponds. Uh, are you familiar with solar ponds? Uh, no, no, but I'm, I'm trying to guess. It's got to do with absorbing solar light. Boy, that is very astute. In the, <laughs> the, uh, it, and the reason I, I, I like to highlight this is it points to a dynamic that people ignore. And, and University of El Paso has been working with it. The Israelis have been working with it. But you can make a, a pond that's a, only about 10 feet deep. And you layer it. The, the bottom five feet might be uh, very salty. And the upper is fresh water. So what happens is is the sun comes in and it heats that lower layer that's very salty. Because of the salt is still too dense to rise to the surface and ventilate. So the heat accumulates. So on a day where you have 60 70 degrees Fahrenheit, that bottom layer can reach 180, 190 degrees. So the oceans can store that much heat just due to that kind of dynamic. And there's lots of places around the ocean where you have this a subsurface layer that's very salty, and then a freshwater layer on top, which might either be from river discharge from the Amazon, or Mississippi, or uh, from heavy rainfall that happens along the equator. And then you have other areas like the the deserts uh, around the world. There's also sort of deserts in the ocean where there's hardly any clouds and it gets heated, high evaporation, very salty water, and all that kind of Gets mixed and in interlayered. And often, if you see a hurricane intensify, it's because it's gone over a layer that the oceanographers will call this a barrier layer, where you have this warm, salty water that should be a little cooler. And it prevents, and the hurricane goes over, instead of allowing the colder, deeper water to come to the surface and calm the hurricane down, that layer of warm, salty water prevents that from happening. And so the hurricane intensifies. So if you look at a track of a hurricane, you might see it in the warmer tropical waters start off as just a storm, and then maybe to a one or two, and then it will intensify to category three or four when it goes over a barrier layer, but only for a day maybe, and only for a small region. You know, it's, it, these hurricanes aren't getting worse because of a global issue. They only intensify in these very specific regions for very specific times, and it has to, to do with the way the oceans store the heat in these kind of salty barrier layers. It seems that, um, you know, for the, the oceans to heat
4: up appreciably, uh, they must be under, they must have had an effect, what we see today must be the effect of hundreds of years ago. Would that be, is there a lag of, of that time, or there's, there's many different lags and
2: cycles? I, I think what we see this warming now, it, a lot of the data shows the oceans were cooling during the Little Ice Age, say from 1200, 1300 to 1850. Uh, and then they've been warming since then. And so that makes me think that it's, it's really just this switch from the oceans having a more El Nino-like character, in a more even distribution of clouds versus a more La Nina factor where certain regions are really allowed to absorb a lot of heat and store it in these salty layers. So, I mean, you would think that the heat, you know, they, the heat would rise to the surface and stratify, but you have this warm, salty water in the Western Pacific around Indonesia. It's It can get as deep as 200 meters. And uh, it... So yeah, it, it,
4: the whole, the whole thing, because I was, I was going on the basis of this uh, for the these deep water currents to go around the world. It's something like two thousand years, and uh, you know that has to be taken into account because it's distributing heat. Uh, so, I and, and so, how can we really predict anything? I, I've seen papers to, uh, based on meta studies saying that the sea level has risen by uh, like something to the order of you know twenty nanometers or something like this um but this is just a meta study this is just a a statistical kind of exercise but it got funded because it it came out showing uh an increase in sea level but you know a fraction of a wavelength or something to that effect so uh it, it and then we're talking about these long cycles and the redistribution of heat and and intensification of storms and and it, it's the result it's such a complicated thing Absolutely. to come out and say trust the science um <laughs> these things to me
2: they're just uh, anathema. it's 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 terrible it, it, mo- most people you know I, I i read five peer-reviewed papers a day and sometimes my wife catches me slumped over in a deep sleep because some of them are pretty boring. Um, it, it's hard to work through. And I can't expect people without a background. I mean, just the vocabulary alone, never mind some of the concepts in, in the statistical analysis, it knocks most of the people out of the water. So you, we really need a, a way to educate the public in a way that doesn't put them to sleep uh you know i've been trying to go to twitter now and see if i can do short blurbs on on twitter because people have a very short attention span you know just to backtrack a little on what you're saying with the oceans it there is uh s- different parts of the ocean store more heat and the atlantic stores some of the most of the heat in deeply and it, it would be hundreds of years and i think they in some places in the Pacific where that water doesn't circulate to the surface that heat can be from a thousand or so years ago. But most of what's affecting our climate, like an El El Nino year is ventilating heat that was stored just 200 meters deep and then washed across the Pacific and brought to the surface and releases that heat. The paradox is an El Nino causes the global average temperature to go up, but it's actually cooling the ocean. You know, but people don't talk about it that way. They go, oh, we're going to, this extra warming of climate change in El Nino's. Well, actually, the El Nino is is cooling the oceans. So it's, again, all all those climate dynamics that are complex, they could be simply expressed to people, but but we're not seeing it. The the multimedia likes to just make this catastrophic confusion. And um, I'm a little nervous of where we're going. Yeah, I'm, I'm in full
4: agreement with you. Um, I could keep on uh, throwing things out, so many things to discuss, but I know we're probably uh, pressed for time, so I just want to open it up to my colleagues here. Um, Grace, how are we doing? Oh,
1: you know, Well, I'll just share this uh, comment from a viewer, and maybe you can add on, Jim, okay? So sure. it says... Uh, Vostok ice core samples show first, there is a temperature rise, the 500 to 800 years later. There is a rise in CO2. These samples go back 400,000 years. It also appears the pattern has been repeating itself over this 400,000 years. So there's really no question, but maybe you can add something. I know um, listening to you and Carl, you, both, we all in agreement that, you know, the climate continues to change. So anything you could share?
2: Um, in terms of a long-term cycle in Antarctica, I, I don't feel like I know enough about what might cause it. What, what I do know is they just pushed, you know, the, the drop in sea ice in the Antarctic, and they're making a big thing about it, and it's only kind of reduced back to what it was in the 60s but there's a, a circulation pattern that happens about it and it's only kind of reduced back to what it Sorry about that. Sorry. That's all right. I just, uh, but you know, where the Antarctic peninsula comes out often the, you have some high heat in those areas, um, but it's often is it's caused by fane winds. Do you know what I mean? When I say there's a fane wind or a it's, you have these winds, they drop all their moisture, they warm, they go up over and, uh, over a mountain crest, which the our Antarctic Peninsula is. And then when it descends, as the pressure increases, the temperature goes up. So when, so when the circulation allows the winds to go around the peninsula, it's colder. And when the winds go over and down, they have these high uh, near record temperatures along the peninsula. But but often the media will say, "Oh, the hottest temperature ever in Antarctica." It was at the very tip, which is nearest the warm ocean waters that are being come from the tropics, and due to a fain wind event. And, and the the, in the inner place, where it's saying the Vostok uh, ice cores, uh, I'm not sure exactly how those cycles change. Um, I do know. A, I can tell you more about how the sea ice is changing the way the pressure says, all the sea ice is, it expands when the, there's strong winds blowing away from the continent and it shrinks when you got winds coming in and pressure systems will do that because there's a circle, you know, on one side, and there's a thing called the Amundsen low pressure system. So on its Eastern side, it's blowing, the winds are blowing in and you get less ice, but on its, on its, uh, western side is blowing out and you get expansive ice so if they average together you lose sight of that but that's this low ice in the antarctic sea ice is because of the way that kind of pattern causes ice to contract and expand and and there is been papers about a a cycles where um, different places the pressure systems change and so ice grows in some places and then the 180 degrees away it's 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 decreasing. So uh, exactly how all that works, I don't feel like I know enough to to ramble, so. Well,
1: thank you, anyway, for sharing your thoughts on that. And um, since you do a lot on the videos and your YouTube, well, what else do you think needs to happen for the, ed- in the educational system? You know, there's a lot of uh, homeschooling, there's a lot of micro school. But they do need some materials, you know. For and every conversation we we have is, we always think of the children.
2: The yeah, I think my my videos are probably uh, a little too scientific for anybody that's uh, a senior in high school or lower. Um, but the CO2 Coalition is has an education committee, and I sit in on that and. Uh, uh, they've come up with a number of comic books, which I had uh, little to do with, but other people, and we're distributing. But, you know, some places they get banned. I know they went to a, an educa- education uh, conference and people kicked them out because they it wasn't the right narrative to be telling. But, you know, we're trying to do that kind of education for kids at different levels. And, and the committee is looking at how can we expand the range Uh, the ages that you're going to target, because different ages are going to require a a different way of of presenting this stuff. So um, I I can only hope it gets better. I I think homeschoolers are are more open to it, um, or at least, you know, teaching critical thinking. Um, Your public schools, you know, I think the the politics, at least in California, it, it tends to be Pretty aligned with left wing thinking that it's climate change and uh, everybody hates fossil fuels, so that must be causing the destruction, and that's the only thing you want to teach. Um, so, but I, other than what we're doing, I, I, uh, there, there's another group that's trying to reach out to kids. Um, he was a senator in Arkansas, I think. His group is, is doing climate change for kids, but those are the only two that I'm really aware of right now.
1: No, thank you. Maybe I'll try to search on that senator in Arkansas.
2: Yeah, and, and and go to the CO2 Coalition's website, and they have their they have a kids education page, and you can see what they have offered. And they, you know, you can ask them to you know, ask Greg to send you some of the the comic books, so you get an understanding of what we're doing.
1: Okay, and. Uh, there's I think more than one time you've been invited to present or speak, have a conversation in you know, it's an, a financial podcast.
0: Uh, so I...
1: It, yeah, I, 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 I brought that up because the question is, who's truly benefiting? And if they, they are weaponizing climate change, they're always having that agenda. The pandemic has been happening and they said, OK, the next agenda is climate change. So who's truly benefiting and why would a financial podcaster even want to invite you? So what's in it for investments?
2: Well, where where I I think you're referring to my last San Francisco economic roundtable where I was invited to speak. And a friend of mine from the university is a member of that. And that roundtable is almost anybody who wants to uh, rise in the politics of the area kind of joins that. That roundtable for a while. and some people have been there for a long time. Uh, there it depends on who you talk to. It's, it's it's a mixed bag of of people's beliefs. and uh, so you know, who benefits from the economics of it? I don't I don't think you could look at that group as as much. Um, you know, again, I think there's people uh, are afraid of the power of the fossil fuel industry they want to control energy and they want to do it their way on their time. And I think those people are the ones that are trying to control stuff and trying to uh, keep this narrative that fossil fuels are going to cause us all to die. And uh, I'm amazed. I see people on Twitter saying uh, uh, climate change is causing thousands of people to die every day. I've been accused of killing people for asking a question. Uh, just by questioning, they, they think we're, we're, we're killing folks. So I think some people are, I know, it's like Chicken Little just got so obsessed with uh, something fearful that, that they really believe it. I think others are, are trying to manipulate the economics. Um, I mean, the government can screw up a, uh, an economic system pretty quickly. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a mixed bag of who we have to worry about. And, and hopefully, as more people understand the science, they might be become better critical thinkers and and be able to see past, uh, some of the fear mongering that's been going on. But there's certainly a lot of fear mongering trying to control us. So, you know, who's trying to control us? I, I don't know if I could put my finger on anybody, but you know, the, the United Nations stands out to me as they've been pushing it, but they're saying the oceans are boiling. We're all going to die. This good uh, has been making all these proclamations. Uh, Al Gore seems to be aligned with all that. He's saying the oceans are boiling. And it's just nonsense. It's nonsense. It's just pure fear mongering for control. Vote for me and I'll set you free.
1: Um, Well, just so you know, we're tweeting in Twitter, or we're streaming in Twitter. So I'll tag you. So that could be your inspiration to start doing your videos more. Twitter, as you mentioned.
2: Well, that's uh, what I've been trying to do is I'll, I'll give a link to my videos and, and I'll, I'll get some increase, but yeah, I have maybe, you know, a, a good tweet. I'll get 30,000 views and you know, that, but I might get a hundred people go over to the YouTube site. Uh, mm-hmm. As I said, most people don't have a, the attention span of a gnat. Um, you know, they'll listen to something for 30 seconds and then they're on, gone. So uh, but I, I feel like it, that's kind of my two-prong attack right now, and and also it, all my videos have uh, my other website called perhaps all natural. I try to put the transcripts of most of my videos over there because some people would rather read than than listen. It moves too okay. fast. So, uh,
1: and and just for uh, additional fun is information for the viewers, I. We do use a binocular infrared, and it's very interesting on what you can see, because you mentioned that, and you could see which parts are more heated up or something. you know. Uh. And that's like a the military uses that. So for our education, it's good to get some gadgets and have a little hobby
2: <laughs> You can get a very cheap infrared gun, and I use this when I was teaching some ecology classes. It, we'd have a, a wet meadow where it's it's drier at the top and wetter at the bottom and it proceeds. but you can have just within a meadow the, the ground's temperature will be 30 to 100 degrees difference uh, at midday because, depending on how much moisture is there depending on what kind of vegetation is there. And you can do that with these these infrared guns they're fairly cheap. I forget what they would cost right about now, but probably not much more than twenty dollars and just look around and see how varied uh, temperatures are. You know, it, people use it to look at their house for insulation, where is the heat is escaping and you can see five, 10 degrees. And you realize that there's so much variation in temperature. How do you get a global average that doesn't have a lot of uncertainty to it? You know, what, what areas are you really counting? And it's mostly weather stations that are in uh, urban centers. The, a lot of the weather stations move to airports and you, you probably put a infrared heat gun to a, a, a runway and it's going to be pretty hot. If you ever walked across pavement and bare feet, you know, I try to be manly about it, but sometimes I go, it's pretty hot stuff. <laughs> and
1: and perhaps it would be nice if you can end, up, end us with, you have that little story about the man who's was on fire or something, and it was a very good and uh, you know uh, stories on how we there's a lot of uh, misinformation or they're not looking totally on what's happening with the climate. Do you remember that story? You mentioned that in in one of your podcasts. One, what the foot is on on the ice, and the other one is on uh, on on something hot, and then that gent- that man called a doctor. Do you remember that?
2: I'm vaguely, but I'm, I'm a little, uh, and then when I can't that, quite remember right at the second, but it, as some of the older folks here can testify, some of those things don't come to mind right away. Oh, Probably yeah. I'm lying down ready to fall asleep tonight, I say, oh, yeah, that's what it was. But
1: <laughs> well, basically you were just showing that that man was uh, when he called, when they when the wife called the doctor and the doctor was. Oh, was yes,
2: just, yes. Remember that? Uh, One foot was in the oven and one was in the freezer and the doctor came and took his temperature and says, gee, I don't see what the problem is. On average, his temperature is perfect. So, um.
1: <laughs> and so please, thank you very much. And do tell um, if you have any more um, pressing in, in insights, please do so. And again, Tell everyone to where to get in touch with you while I continue to post and do some checkers.
2: And I'll put out a tweet linking to here to your uh, website. So, uh, send me where, where would be the best place to send people to see what you're producing?
1: Oh, thank you for the question. <laughs> so, this we will upload this and it's streaming in Rumble right now. It's streaming in so Quantum Nurse Rumble and the Quantum Nurse. Twitter, but it will also be on BitChute or Rumble of uh, BitChute of Roy. So all of us share this information. That's the beautiful thing of this, because we make it more powerful by sharing. So it will be in BitChute, Rumble, Brighteon. um, And that's all the videos, but it will also be in a lot of audio. Okay? And there's that info. I have this banner for that for Jim's, um, I can. Well, anyway, say, say your email again, please, Jim.
2: <laughs> okay, my email is jsteel at sfsu.edu. and if you send me your e- email of where you have this posted, I'll I'll just I put up on my Twitter account. Here's my interview at
1: yes
2: with your place. So yes.
1: we'll do, we'll do. Uh, anything more, guys? Roy, Carl. So, thank you so much. Oh, we've
3: covered every so. Thanks very much, Jim. Really appreciate.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it. We've covered quite a bit, but there's still a lot more. Yeah, there is.
4: I'm, I'm. I don't want to say anything because I'll open up another conversation. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, very nice to meet you, and thank you so much. You too. Yeah. Glad to meet and, all of
1: you. And and please, um, we'll make sure that we'll invite you again because we, as you said, there's so much more to talk about. Thank
2: you. Uh, I'm, I'm retired and my whole mission in life is uh, to make sure we get the science right. I, I, I survived a Widowmaker heart attack, one of the 10% lucky people that have a couple of years ago. So I feel like, OK, got to go down and swing it. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm doing.
1: And to Thanks. all our viewers and followers, and, and please yeah, help us disseminate the uh, right uh, right information, okay? Especially for our children and for all you all of us there who's still making it every single day the best of our days. Take care and source bless.
2: Thank you. Bye. So
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. You can find everything about me on bio.link forward slash podcaster with all only my- Podcasts, and you find it you see it in the QR code in the graphic that's shown. I'd like again to thank my sponsors. So, if you or someone you know struggling with anxiety and want to know how to be 100% anxiety-free six weeks without therapy or drugs, Daniel Packard's Anxiety Solution Program company offers a six-week system that permanently solves anxiety at an astounding 90% success rate. People who join the program only pay at the end once they have clear, measurable results. If you're interested in learning more, go to PermanentAnxietySolutions.com where you can book a free consultation with Daniel. Do you fight blood pressure and or want to get off the meds? Doctors are amazed at what Zona Plus can do. You can get a $50 discount with my code ROY, ZOINA.com slash discount slash ROY. And you'll see the QR code as well as Daniel's QR code. Quality manufacturer of metal products for telecommunication and workshop equipment and other metal materials. you see the brochure there in the QR code and let me know if you would like a quotation shipped internationally at a very competitive price. I'd like to thank all my sponsors and also all my listeners. Be sure to give me a thumbs up, five star rating, share with your friends, really helps. And I also have a video on how to give a five star rating because a lot of people have wrote to me asking me that they don't know how to do that. Until next week, take care.